September 5th. As we turn our attention to the New Testament, today we're reading in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We're talking about here some of the things that uh, is required. Faithfulness is one thing that's required. Those who handle the Lord's money should be dedicated and faithful, making certain that everyone is honest and honorable. It is a testimony to others. A year before, the zeal of the Corinthians had stirred others to give. Now Paul had to stir up the Corinthians. We must not give to be praised by people, but we must also be good examples before others. If we make promises, we should keep them. And things must be done gladly, especially giving. If you want spiritual enrichment from your giving, you must practice enjoyment and be glad for opportunities to give. Look at God's promises to faithful givers. How can you lose? It was a George Sweeting who wrote, For the Macedonian Christians, giving was not a chore but a challenge, not a burden but a blessing. Giving was not something to be avoided, but a privilege to be desired. And with that, let's begin our reading today in the New Testament. September 5th, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Now I, Paul, want to tell you, dear brothers and sisters, what God in His kindness has done for the churches in Macedonia. Though they have been going through much trouble and hard times, their wonderful joy and deep poverty have overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again, for the gracious privilege of sharing in the gift for the Christians in Jerusalem. Best of all, they went beyond our highest hopes, for their first action was to dedicate themselves to the Lord and to us for whatever directions God might give them. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to complete your share in this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, you have so much faith, such gifted speakers, such knowledge, such enthusiasm, and such love for us. Now I want you to excel also in this gracious ministry of giving. I'm not saying you must do it, even though the other churches are eager to do it. This is one way to prove your love is real. You know how full of love and kindness our Lord Jesus Christ was. Though he was very rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I suggest that you finish what you started a year ago, for you were the first to propose this idea, and you were the first to begin doing something about it. Now you should carry this project through to completion, just as enthusiastically as you began it. Give whatever you can, according to what you have. If you are really eager to give, it isn't important how much you are able to give. God wants you to give what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean you should give so much that you suffer from having too little. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help them. Then, at some other time, they can share with you when you need it. 
In this way, everyone's needs will be met. Do you remember what the scriptures say about this? Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. I was interviewed yesterday for a series of programs that were being presented about Reformed theology. And the person who was uh, running this uh, program asked me what the basic issue was between Augustinian theology or Reformed theology and historic semi-Pelagianism. I said, I think it comes down to a different understanding of freedom and of free will. I think the principal problem that people have with divine sovereignty, with divine election, is immediately they say, well, we believe that man has free will. Well, I don't know any Augustinian in all of church history who didn't strongly affirm that we have free will. We are volitional creatures. God has given us minds and hearts, and he's given us wills. And we exercise that will all the time. We make choices every minute of the day. And we choose what we want. We choose freely. Nobody's coercing us, putting a gun to our head. And we're not robots. Robots don't have minds. Robots don't have wills. Robots don't have hearts. We're human beings. We make choices. That's why we're in trouble with God. Because the choices that we make in our fallen condition are sinful choices. We choose according to our desires, which are only wicked continuously, the Bible tells us. And that we are, as it were, dead in sin and trespasses, even though biologically we're very much alive. And we're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh is what the Bible tells us. And so the Bible makes it very clear that we are actively involved in making choices for which we are responsible and which expose us to the judgment of God. And yet at the same time, the Bible teaches us that we're enslaved. We're free from coercion. But we don't have what Augustine called royal liberty. We're not free from ourselves. We're not free from our own sinful inclinations and our sinful appetites and our sinful desires. We're slaves to our sinful impulses. That's what the Bible teaches us again and again and again. The humanist doctrine of free will, the pagan view of free will, says that man is free not only from coercion, but man is free in the sense that his will is indifferent. It has no predisposition or inclination, bias, or bent towards sin. Because the pagan and the humanist deny the radical character of the fall. But the Bible teaches us that we are fallen creatures who still choose and make decisions, but we make them in the context of our prison of sin. And the only way we can get out of that prison is if God sets us free. Psalm 49, verses 1 through 20. 
Whether you're rich or poor, this psalm is for you because it deals with two important subjects, death and money. Do not boast in your wealth or trust in your wealth, wrote the psalmist. And he explained why. Because your wealth cannot prevent death. When Queen Elizabeth I was dying, she said, All my possessions for one moment of time. Although money can buy medicine and professional help, it cannot buy God off when the death angel comes to claim you. And your wealth cannot go with you. The dead bodies of both men and beasts turn to dust in the grave, and the rich are not exempt from this end. When a believer dies, the spirit goes to be with the Lord, but you cannot take your wealth with you. However, you can send it ahead as you share it with others in the name of the Lord. And the other lesson we'll learn here is your wealth cannot buy permanent fame. Men praise the rich while they live, honor them when they die, and perhaps hope to inherit a little something, and then forget about them. The rich man can build himself a monument, but he cannot make people remember him. Verse 15 reveals the believer's assurance of future resurrection. That is what conquers death and makes life worth living. Psalm 49, verses 1 through 20. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. Listen to this, all you people. Pay attention, everyone in the world, high and low, rich and poor. Listen, for my words are wise, and my thoughts are filled with insight. I listened carefully to many proverbs and solve riddles with inspiration from a harp. There is no need to fear when times of trouble come, when enemies are surrounding me. They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Those who are wise must finally die. Just like the foolish and senseless, leaving all their wealth behind, the grave is their eternal home, where they will stay forever. They may name their estates after themselves, but they leave their wealth to others. They will not last long despite their riches. They will die like the animals. This is the fate of fools, though they will be remembered as being so wise. Like sheep, they are led to the grave, where death will be their shepherd. In the morning the godly will rule over them. Their bodies will rot in the grave, far from their grand estates. But as for me, God will redeem my life. He will snatch me from the power of death. So don't be dismayed when the wicked grow rich, and their homes become ever more splendid. For when they die, they carry nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them into the grave. In this life they consider themselves fortunate, and the world loudly applauds their success. But they will die like all others before them, and never again see the light of day. People who boast of their wealth don't understand that they will die like the animals. Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21 
I have written thirty sayings for you, filled with advice and knowledge. In this way, you may know the truth and bring an accurate report to those who sent you.